Hello and welcome to Front and Center, a show dedicated to insights and perspectives on commercial real estate investment across the public and private markets. For more information, please visit centersquare.com. Welcome back to another episode of Front and Center. I'm Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist and Global ESG Lead here at Center Square. For the third installation of our Outlook series, I'm joined by two familiar voices, Michael Boxer and Rich Gorski, who are managing directors for our private real estate debt platform. The real estate credit markets have been no stranger to the headlines and a driving force of the resetting valuations across the asset class. So I'm excited to dig into the topic here a little bit more with both of them and discuss our outlook for the private real estate debt markets in the coming year. So thank you both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us, Uma. Always a pleasure. Michael, maybe I'll kind of start with you here. There's just been so much volatility in the debt markets recently. And given you've spent three decades investing in real estate debt, I'll start by asking, you know, how does this current market environment for real estate debt compare to the prior cycles that you've invested through? Yeah, thank you for highlighting my age to the group. I appreciate that. Your wisdom, Michael, your wisdom. <laughs> All good. Yeah, so look, this is really the first time that I've experienced a change uh, in the market as a result of fundamental changes happening on the real estate level, changes in the way we use real estate, uh, changes in fundamental demand for different asset classes. We had the downturn associated with the late 1980s and early 90s that was associated with lenders and owners and operators getting out over their skis excess supply in almost every asset class and also changes to the tax code and the snl crisis of course some of the residual from the failed snls in that era but nothing really to do with the fundamental uh, use of commercial real estate. Then you had the, of course, fast forwarding to the GFC, began in 08, and the effects were felt through 09. That was the result of exogenous events that happened really in the capital markets, right? The, sub, the, the subprime uh, mortgage crisis sort of trickled over into everything and as a result, real estate and real estate values got hit. Again, really having nothing to do with the demand, the underlying demand for real estate. But now this one feels very different because of fundamental changes in our demand for certain asset classes, especially office, which is the poster child. Clearly, uh, the way we are uh, using retail, commercial, you know, retail real estate, changing with imagination, if you will, of regional malls versus the vitality we're seeing in service retail, the, the strip malls. So that really is the extent to which this period of volatility differs from others that I've experienced. Yeah, definitely, definitely a lot of things changing. And I think changing the definition of what we would consider to be core real estate these days? Is it that office building or is it maybe that data center that you need to actually run your business, right? Rich, maybe turning to you, one of the, the big concerns that has been taking over the headlines has been about this wall of maturities, right? We were looking into that wall of maturities in 2023, continuing into 2024. 
And it became even more pronounced after we saw some trouble with the regional banks early last year. And it seems like lenders kind of just kicked the can down the road. What's on the horizon this year as it relates to the maturities that are coming due? Do you think banks can continue to kick the can down the road? Ayuma, thanks for having us again. I think that in certain instances, in particular office, I think banks, as long as the regulators are allowing them to, I think they will continue to kick the can down the road. I think with respect to other asset classes where there is liquidity, but the underlying asset is just over levered, there's going to be less kicking the can down the road. And I think lenders, rightly so, will force an outcome. And so the example that I would use is if someone bought a multifamily property in 2001 at a three cap and they put floating rate debt on it when SOFR was essentially zero and now SOFR is over 5% and there's debt coming due and a requirement to buy a replacement cap. And the sponsor either hasn't executed their business plan, in which case they have a big problem, or even if they have executed their business plan, they may have just overpaid for the asset in retrospect. I think that in those situations, I think the lenders are going to essentially force an outcome. And we've actually been the beneficiary of some of those instances where we have sponsors who didn't necessarily overpay wildly, but given where interest rates are and given the repricing that's occurred, there are cash in refinancings required if sponsors don't want to sell assets. And right now, frankly, most sponsors don't want to sell assets unless they're forced to. And so we've been seeing some really good opportunities in deploying some capital in instances which we call sort of like gap capital, where the business plan has largely been executed, the assets largely stabilized, the sponsor is looking to take on five-year, hopefully fixed-rate financing if they can get it, but the amount of debt that can be supported today is 20 to 30% below what was on the property, and we are helping to sort of fill the gap for some of that 20 to 30%, and then the sponsor is coming out of pocket with the additional pay down, but to a lesser extent. So I, I do think that the, the whole kicking the can down the road in 2009 and the GFC, I think it's going to be less so here other than with respect to the office side of the equation. To be fair, right, the office side of the equation for many of these banks is fairly sizable and it's, I'm sure, taking up a lot of their bandwidth, especially for these traditional lenders. And part of just dealing with a lot of this meant that they pulled back pretty meaningfully last year in terms of deploying new capital. Do you anticipate a lot of these traditional lenders in the private commercial real estate market to to continue with some of that pullback this year as well? I do think that for a lot of the balance sheet lenders, I do think that lending is going to be moderated. I don't know, Uma, if it's so much of like a resource bandwidth issue in terms of human capital. I mean, yes, it does take time when you're having to deal with like loan workouts. Michael and I together have been through three different cycles and in the MES and subordinate debt space, when cycles occur, you have to be prepared to sort of work through the issues, which I think we've done successfully. So I don't think it's so much like bandwidth on the human capital side, but what I do think is gonna continue to be a bit of a gating item and is gonna lead to continued sort of reduction in lending is balance sheet lenders assume payoffs. And those payoffs essentially restock their capital base and allow them to make new loans. And in this environment, as I said before, payoffs are coming from either refinances or sales. As a general matter, most people are not selling unless they have to. So that source of repayments is, for the most part, off the table. And 
People who have term on their debt are probably not looking to refinance right now unless they have to, because I think the anticipation is that interest rates will come down over time. Some people think it's going to happen more quickly than I think I certainly think, but I'm not saying that waiting, if it's an option, is not a decent option. But as a result of, of the, the sort of diminished payoffs, that is probably going to hold back new lending more so than, yes, there's office exposure. And so banks can't necessarily take on as much additional exposure as they may have otherwise been willing to do because of some of the regulators. But I just think the pace of repayment slowing significantly will continue to make balance sheet lenders less active than they had been. But insurance companies are still active. Banks are still active for the right asset type and the right sponsor. If I may add a point to Rich's answer about the capacity and bandwidth for lenders going forward, a lot of the restricted activity is a result of this great sort of pricing discovery exercise that we are all watching. Uma, I know you have been a big proponent of continuing to watch the discrepancy in the way real estate is valued in both the public markets context and the private markets. And you very rightly so in all the research that you've done point out that there still remains a, a meaningful discrepancy between those two ends of the market. And getting back to the banks, your question about the banks and capacity and, and, and willingness to lend, part of their reticence is stemming from this idea that values are still moving around. And lenders are keenly aware of maintaining their good standing with the regulators and strong balance sheets and the amount of the, the correct amount of regulatory capital. And if they put a loan on their books secured by a piece of real estate that they think may be worth five, seven, 10, 15 percent less in the coming quarters, that is going to impact their balance sheet and regulatory capital status. So until we get more transactions, and, and until there is greater sort of agreement among the different ends of the real estate investment uh, universe, meaning publics and privates, when they have a meeting of the minds as to sort of where values sit, uh, activity both on the lending side and on the investing side is likely to continue to be constrained. And then you create this like negative feedback loop because you can't get more lending until there are more transactions and you can't get more transactions until there's more lending. So it's going to be, Rich and I, I think, espouse this idea that it is going to be a sort of chronic unwind, if you will, or a chronic making itself known of slowly unfolding story about sort of like where real estate values are going to settle in over the coming quarters. Yeah, absolutely. A bit of a chicken and an egg problem. But to your point, Michael, right, we're looking at REITs in the listed market trading near a 6% cap rate, whereas a lot of assets in the private market are still being appraised in the low 4% range. And so you have a fairly wide disparity in terms of where real estate investors believe values to be, where you're looking at the forward looking public markets in, in a slightly different way. So maybe I'll kind of come back to you, Michael, right? And I'll ask the, the professor and you to simplify this and go back to, to kind of Econ 101. 
it seems like we have this wall of maturities that needs to be dealt with. So there is demand for debt capital, but traditional lenders are restricted. So we don't have quite the same level of supply for debt capital. So we should be seeing a pretty nice fundamental setup for alternative debt providers of debt capital to step into the marketplace and do so at fairly attractive pricing. Are you seeing that happen? And, and how are you seeing this potentially reflected in investor sentiment? Well, first of all, there have been tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars raised in the institutional marketplace uh, for quote unquote credit funds. And the term credit is, is used broadly. It, of, of course, can apply to both real estate and non-real estate assets. And we know for a fact that a good portion of that institutional capital has been raised for credit funds focused on the real estate market because of the perceived opportunity. I do see, up until this point, not a lot of high percentage of that capital that has been raised has been deployed. I think it is sitting on the sidelines. It is waiting for sort of more sort of clarity to be had with regard to sort of like where valuations are going to settle in. I think of the trillion and a half dollars of commercial loans that are coming due, uh, we've already seen five or six hundred million dollars come due over the last year or so. And much of that, as Rich just mentioned earlier, was dealt with by the banks kicking the can down the road and offering up an extension to their, to their borrowers so that they don't have to seek new financing. Eventually, that dynamic is going to come to an end. And the banks are no longer going to be willing or able to kick the can down the road. And that sort of willingness to force an outcome is going to bring sort of transaction volume to, you know, to higher levels. It is going to force the issue in terms of the need for additional either equity capital or PREF or mezzanine However you wanna how, how, however you wanna look at it, and that is going to result in a lot of that capital getting deployed over again. We see that being put to work over the next call it six to eighteen or twenty-four months. And and Michael, I think a lot of what you talked about in terms of some of the capital that's waiting on the sidelines might also be waiting for some distressed types of opportunities, right? Is is that the type of opportunity that you think is really ahead of us? Or, or how are you thinking about the opportunity set and, and where are you going hunting? So certainly there are going to be opportunities and truly distressed assets. I alluded to some of those assets that really have had a sea change uh, in the way those assets are used fundamentally. For example, there has been a huge sort of migration away from you know, lower quality, older vintage office into newer, higher quality, more technologically up-to-date office space. So one can view sort of like those older vintage office assets as being sort of fundamentally uh, distressed. And those assets are going to attract capital, but it is going to require almost a sort of developer mentality be brought to those kinds of assets because they're going to have to be re-envisioned into something that they are not today. The, those opportunities will present themselves, whether it be in office or certain segments of outdated uh, multifamily that has reached their the limits of their useful life. Th that is not what Rich and I have sort of 
focused our efforts on. We view ourselves as a lender that plays sort of within the universe of high yield lending. We view ourselves as occupying that space at the very low end of the risk spectrum. And that requires that we focus our opportunities on assets that are not fundamentally distressed, such as the ones I just described, but those that merely need a right-sizing in their capital structure. Their underlying fundamental use remains unchanged or merely could benefit from sort of like an upgrade. Again, you know, you pick the asset class, but it is not a fundamentally distressed asset. They still have a fairly predictable and reliable level of cash flow that we could look towards in terms of, you know, our sort of ultimate sort of repayment or being able to, to service our investment on a current basis. So, yes, it's very important to distinguish between the fundamentally distressed assets and those that are merely in need of a resizing of the capital structure. And because of our strategic focus at the low end of the risk spectrum, Rich and I have made the strategic decision to focus on those assets that just require some additional capital to get them sort of headed in the right direction into the, the next few years of their evolution. And I think one of the asset classes or the property types that lends itself really well to fit into the box that you're talking about, Michael, is, is multifamily, right? So maybe, Rich, drilling down further on multifamily, as you think about deploying debt capital within this property type, how are you currently thinking about pricing, right? What does the availability and pricing of debt look like for multifamily? And where do you think it could go from here? Yeah, multifamily is certainly one of our focuses, but just to be clear, it is not our sole focus. We're really active across all of the traditional asset classes. Obviously today, given sort of the fundamentals of office, unless there's an extremely compelling story, we're not diving into the pool on, on the office side, but whether it's retail, hospitality, industrial, or multifamily, uh, we are active across all those and have been over our 20 plus years. On the multifamily side, what I would say in terms of how we're thinking about pricing and deploying capital, multifamily is unique in, in many ways, but probably most notably with respect to the financing, right? You have the agency lenders who exist and essentially provide consistent sources of liquidity. And that allows for consistency throughout sort of all cycles with respect to transactions. Now, granted, when rates are higher as they are now. I mean, historically, they're not high. It's just that Michael and I accepted because we're a little bit older. A lot of people haven't seen rates this high ever, but rates have been this high before and the world functioned. It's just that cap rates obviously were in 3%. So on the multifamily side, the agency lenders are still lending, broadly speaking, in sort of the 150 to 200 basis point spread range over five or 10 year treasury. Uh, the issue with that is given where the underlying treasuries are and their DSCR constrained underwriting, those loans are sizing to a lower level. So where we have been, frankly, extremely active and we've been doing this since 2015 is we're providing preferred equity investments um, behind the agencies. It is, from our perspective, a great risk-adjusted return in a great asset class. The other thing that I'd note in terms of like our pricing, and I think this goes back to the question that you posed to Michael just before, our pricing 
broadly speaking, is somewhere in the 12 to 14, 15-ish percent range on like an IRR basis. And I think that is palatable. I think it is high for borrowers, but I think it is palatable when you think of the fact that when we're the subordinate debt, we're maybe 20% of the capital stack. So if 60% of the capital stack is priced at 150 over a 4% 10-year, when you blend that cost of capital together, you wind up with an acceptable blended rate of return. Sponsors may think it's higher than they want to pay, but it's acceptable and it can be supported. I think what a lot of people are doing, and again, as Michael said, we kind of really differentiate ourselves, I think, in this regard in the credit space, which people sort of tend to lump everyone together. There are a lot of people who are in the quote unquote credit space who are looking for 15% plus returns as like a benchmark. And I would make the argument that for the most part, when sponsors are paying 15 to 18%, that may be called credit and it may structurally have some credit elements to it, but form over substance, that's probably effectively equity or it is much higher into the capital stack than where we would go. And so maybe it's like 90 to 95% of value as opposed to most of the investments that we're making, we're attaching at 60-ish percent where the senior lender is cutting off and we're detaching today somewhere in the 75 to maybe 80% range. And so I think multifamily will continue to be a great asset class for us. Again, the agencies do provide a huge backstop there, but I think over time we'll continue to be active in, in some of the other asset classes, again, with the exception being office, which I think really needs to sort of fundamentally play itself out. We don't see the benefit, given that we aim for the lower end of the risk spectrum, we don't see the benefit of putting our neck out, if you will, on the office side and, and making a bet as opposed to, you know, taking a view that we're much more confident in and can underwrite to. And Rich, as you think about deploying capital, how has that evolved over the last year or two, given what we've seen in the debt markets? I mean, you alluded to some of the attachment point, detachment points that we're seeing today for MES debt or PREF equity. How has that evolved? How has pricing changed over, over the last year or two? Yeah. So what I would say is we're seeing, I would say that we're not having to go as deep into the capital stack as we previously had. I would say that at most of what we had been financing had been much more the value-add type opportunities and much less of the gap capital, which makes sense because the gap capital really only sort of comes into play when you have people who on a refinancing are coming up short. So if interest rates are very low and they stay low, you're not going to have those. When interest rates were low and people have to refinance into a higher interest rate environment, that's where we see those. So uh, we've seen a lot more of those gap capital opportunities. And frankly, we've seen a lot less of the value add opportunities because the value add opportunities essentially require sponsors to pay up, if you will, today for perceived upside. And I think most sponsors are not willing to take that risk or sort of pay up at those levels today. And so I think overall, our credit profile has gotten, generally speaking, better. And on the pricing side, where we have played in the capital stack is more of an absolute yield-based pricing. And so when SOFR was zero, we were still earning 12 to 14% kind of IRRs. SOFR is now over 5%. And the treasury went from you know 2% to call it 4% on the 10-year. 
you know, we're still broadly speaking in sort of the 12 to 15% range. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are an absolute yield lender. We are not a spread-based lender like a lot of the senior lenders out there. And I think the other thing that it has to do with is the fact that as we touched upon, we are not looking to take what we think is outsized risk to earn an additional 100 or 200 basis points, hopefully, because it's all well and good for borrowers to be willing to agree to pay 15, 16, 17%. But on the lender side, again, you really have to think about if someone's willing to pay 17% for something, do you really believe that you're going to earn the 17% or are you effectively buying the asset? And we are, you know, throughout our 20 plus year history, we are known as a lender. We make a loan. Uh, we hopefully have, are able to help the borrower execute upon their business plan. And then our ultimate intent and goal is to get paid back and earn a fair rate of return for ourselves and our investors. I think some of the folks who are out there lending at 17%, I think that you know, their intent may be otherwise in terms of ultimately coming to own the asset. That is, that is not our goal ultimately. So I think in terms of looking forward, I think we're going to continue to see really good opportunities. I think there's going to continue to be a lack of available capital, but I do think that transaction volume will continue to be muted. I think what will happen over time, appraisal, as you mentioned earlier, Uma, appraisal are generally, as you know, backward looking and based on sales comps. And so things still may be appraising well because there haven't really been many sales. And so the last sales that the appraiser was looking to were done in like a different interest rate environment. You know, as price discovery comes out, I think it will lead to increased transaction activity. I just think it's going to take some time. Fair enough. Michael or Rich, any final thoughts as you think about the real estate debt markets in the coming year that we haven't touched on yet? In closing, I mean, I would just say that I can honestly make the statement that this is one of the more exciting times to be a lender only because of the volatility and the turbulence that we're experiencing in the market as a result of a coming out of covid and the unprecedented pace of a magnitude of the rate hikes that we've experienced from the fed over you know the last you know year or so that is unsettling to the market it causes investors both owners and operators and lenders alike to pause, to take a step back, uh, to let their emotions get the better of them. And that creates opportunities for market participants who can see through these sort of episodic conditions and know how value is created, how it is maintained, and how it is likely to fare as conditions continue to normalize. And that's creating, you know, a great opportunity for Rich and I and the rest of the debt team to put capital to work in really intelligent ways secured by real estate that based on our experience, we know over the immediate, inter intermediate and longer term basis will uh, continue to perform very well and will allow us and our investors to earn really attractive risk-adjusted returns by taking an exposure to those well-conceived assets. All right, great. Well, with, with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Rich and Michael, for a really great conversation about our outlook for the real estate debt market in 2024. It seems like it is shaping up to be another really exciting year for debt investors. 
We'll be back next week with another installation of our Outlook series focused on the private equity real estate market on next week's episode of Front and Center. Thanks for listening to Front and Center. You can subscribe on your favorite streaming platform and please be sure to leave us a review. To stay up to date, you can visit our website at centersquare.com to access our thought leadership, sign up for our mailing list, or contact our team. We look forward to hearing from you. The content of this podcast is informational only and represents the viewpoints of the presenters at the time of recording. It should not be regarded as a solicitation nor investment advice. All information presented is subject to change at any time based on new data, analysis, or market conditions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.